me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to read the first 12 verses this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would help us as we read your word as we have our minds uh, intent on understanding its meaning. Uh, Lord, as our hearts are open uh, to receiving uh, both uh, guidance and and encouragement and rebuke and correction and all the other things that your word is meant to give us as it is a living word, uh, Lord, our, our souls, our hearts are open before you. Have your way with us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well-behaved women seldom make history. Heard that before? It's sort of become an unofficial slogan for the women's liberation movement over the last few decades, but now it's, it's so common it's become a part of our pop culture where you can see that same uh, expression printed regularly on bumper stickers, on T-shirts, even on coffee mugs. It's a very common statement today that well-behaved women seldom make history. Now, the the Harvard College professor who actually penned those words 
uh, did not mean for them to be a rallying cry for rebellion or to encourage misbehaved women. Rather, uh, her concern was just the opposite. She was a uh, historian, uh, still is, and uh, she was looking back at the colonial days in Puritan America where she was bemoaning the fact that women who prayed regularly and read their Bibles and went to church each week uh, very rarely were remembered in history. Instead, it was always the witches and the lawless antinomians and, and the others who, who made a name for themselves in our history book, whereas the average woman, especially those back then, were only visible in the historical records for three things. They got married, they gave birth, and they died. That's the extent of most of the history of women in colonial America. But that, that's often the way it is in the world as well. Certainly in Scripture also, uh, we all remember the names Jezebel and Delilah, do we not? But it's not completely true because we also remember the likes of women like Sarah and Abigail and, and Esther. Uh, in fact, to be remembered in any society, something has to be outstanding about them. Sometimes it's because they're especially wicked, Sometimes it's because they're especially good, or sometimes because they've done something especially baffling to others, sort of like the woman that we read about earlier in Mark chapter 14, the woman who had taken this very expensive ointment and broken the jar and anointed the head of Jesus. Uh, the Scripture says because of this very unusual act, very sacrificial act on her part, uh, that she would be remembered as long as the gospel is preached. But did you notice that her name was never mentioned? At least not in this text. Uh, when we go to John's gospel, we see it's most likely the same woman that's identified as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, because of her great love for the Lord Jesus. She desired to anoint him uh, before going to his death into the grave. But it can be just as hard as for a man to make a name for himself as it is for a woman. Again, it's the same thing. He has to do something especially great, good, evil, baffling in that sense. In fact, the, the, the very first time the expression to make a name for oneself comes up in the history records is actually through uh, John Wycliffe's Bible translation in reference to David in 2 Samuel 8, verse 13. It reads this way, And David made a name for himself, when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That's one way to make a name for yourself, right? Most men don't accomplish such a feat. But this concept of making a name for oneself or having one's name remembered is really the theme of this final chapter in the book of Ruth. Everything about this final chapter has something to do with this concept of one's name being remembered, whether it starts with uh, the likes of Malan and Elimelech having their name remembered uh, through this redemption of their property, to the genealogy at the end in which all these names are listed and remembered over and over again, this concept of having one's name remembered is of great importance. And of course, this morning we'll see that both Boaz as well as Ruth make a name for themselves through their great sacrificial love, not just for each other, uh, but for the love of these relatives who have already died and passed away. It's really quite a story of sacrifice and love. There's a reason why we have it here in the book of Ruth. More than one reason, in fact, we'll get to that in a minute. But if you remember from last week, when we last left Ruth and, and Naomi, 
uh, if you remember, Ruth had taken that bold approach and had done what her mother-in-law had suggested for her to do, and she had gone to the threshing floor that night and surprised Boaz and proposed marriage to him. When she finally comes back, she shares with Naomi all that Boaz had said about redeeming her if this other redeemer didn't show up. And then uh, Naomi gives her this advice. She says to her, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So now, chapter 4, it's the same day, just a couple of hours later at best. And now we're seeing that Boaz is making his way to the city of Bethlehem um, and takes his seat on the stone bench, which is at the city gate. So again, uh, if you know much about ancient history, pretty much every contract or legal um, uh, thing that required witnesses always took place at the city gates for a number of reasons. One primarily was because that's where most people always were. You'd always have plenty of witnesses to verify that what happened actually happened. Uh, but that's also where the elders took their seats as well. So you'd have ten elders in a typical city, a small town, and they would take their seats on this stone bench and they would judge between two parties. And so Boaz purposely goes there to meet with the elders and so that there are witnesses around because they're about to do a contract negotiation, if you will. Uh, so Boaz is at the gate. He's waiting for this kinsman redeemer to show up. The way the Scripture reads, behold, he just shows up. So again, one of those providential things by God. He just happens to come by right after Boaz sits down. And then as a result, um, he begins to have the elders come sit down. They're all ready to have this conversation. And notice in verse 3, Boaz doesn't begin with what he had promised Ruth. He doesn't begin with this idea of redeeming Ruth, but rather he begins with this concept of a contract on a piece of property, the, the piece of property that Naomi owned. Now, uh, I don't want to get too technical with you here, but technically in ancient times, no one actually sold their property to someone else, even though it reads that way in the ESV. Naomi's not selling this piece of property to another redeemer. She's only selling what's what's called the usufruct, or the, the rights to farm that land and to, re, to get the fruit from that land for a period of time until the year of Jubilee. So in other words, even though she is a woman, because her husband had died, because her sons have also passed away, uh, she has the right to the land, but she cannot sell it because it is land that was given to her husband by God as part of his clan, as part of his lineage, as part of his tribe. It was always meant to stay with him. She cannot sell it, but she can sell the rights to the land until the year of Jubilee, which at that point it would revert back to her. But of course, as you know, Naomi's in a very unique position because she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have sons. If she were to sell the rights to this land, by the time the year of Jubilee actually comes around again, more than likely she'll be dead. And as a result, she'll lose not only the rights to the land, but lose the property itself. And so uh, this is the issue that she's facing um, she's sort of take she's she's only doing this because she's absolutely desperate. Again, she's just come back from Moab. She probably doesn't have a, a penny to her name, so she's cash poor. She has all this land, but she can't even afford to buy the seed to 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 sow the the land. Nor does she have enough money to hire someone out to help her and Ruth to reap uh, the fruit of the land. So she's having to do this in a sense of desperation. Of course, when when Boaz explains the concept of the property being sold uh, to this other redeemer, he's not at all concerned about Naomi's plight. 
uh, he sees it as an opportunity because he realizes she's an old lady. <laughs> it's almost, uh, you know, we're still a number of years away from the Jubilee, so he sees this as, a, as an investment opportunity, basically. And so as soon as Boaz explains to him all that's involved with that aspect of the land, immediately he agrees, yes, I'll do that. I'll redeem that property on behalf of Naomi. But we know that he's not doing it out of a sense of love or a sense of uh, wanting to maintain the name of these dead men, but simply as a way to make money and to eventually take this property on his own for not only that generation, but for the generations to come. All of his sons would enjoy the rights to that property as well. It would become his. So, in fact, Naomi would lose that property. And, and that disappoints us. I think all of us, uh, the reader, especially the first time we read it, we're sort of you know, rooting for Boaz, the, the honorable man, to get together with this faithful um, Ruth, uh, the daughter of, of, of Naomi. But when this guy steps up and says he'll do it, you're like, really, him? No. <laughs> um, but we see that Boaz is um, informing him in verse 5 that when he buys the field from Naomi, he also will acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now notice Boaz is not, he's not stupid here. Um, he's actually sort of setting this other redeemer up. He makes it sound like a very sweet deal at first. And so the man is quickly agrees to do it. But then he gives all the caveats and all the complications. And so now the man uh, is beginning to hear uh, about Ruth, the Moabite. So somehow, I mean, whether he knew about her or not, we don't know, but certainly Boaz is filling him in all the details. But notice, though, it's interesting, Boaz, who has never referred to Ruth up until this point as the Moabite, like everyone else did, he now is doing that to make this other man feel the effect of this foreign woman and of the, uh, the possible complications that go along with that. He also informs this guy uh, that she's still of marriageable age, uh, still of childbearing age, so it brings in all these complications, and as a result, um, he, Boaz is showing that it's not just an opportunity to make money, but really what it is, is an opportunity to show mercy and love to this family. So he really just does an about-face with them all together, and um, whoever would purchase the rights to this property, immediately this, this man realizes that not only would it cost labor and money to invest the seed and to hire men to, to reap the, the fruit of the land, but also immediately he would have to add a, a sort of a mother-in-law suite onto his house. He'd have to provide for the children and, and prepare this land also that the son of Ruth then would inherit it and he would get nothing for it. And so uh, he's beginning to rethink the offer. <laughs> as soon as I read that line, I was thinking of, uh, you know, the old GPS systems, uh, when you took a wrong turn, you remember what they used to say to you? Recalculating, recalculating, <laughs> recalculating. He, in his mind, he is re-coming up with this new idea. Like, okay, this doesn't seem like a sweet deal after all because he's realizing not only does he put his own reputation at risk for marrying this foreign woman that he doesn't really know very well, he's also putting his own property at risk because he's having to invest up front all of this money that's eventually only going to go to this woman's son. So he emphatically says at that point, I can't redeem it. Uh, if you want to, it's all yours. So now it's the second time in the book of Ruth where two people stand at a crossroads, have to make a decision, and 
it affects the rest of their lives. If you remember, the first time we saw this was with Orpah and Ruth, right? Uh, Orpah and Ruth both had the opportunity to go back with Naomi to the promised land. Orpah decided to return to Moab instead, and she's never heard from ever again. Ruth, on the other hand, becomes this well-known daughter-in-law of Naomi. In the same way, now these two men, Boaz and this other redeemer, have the opportunity to go with Naomi uh, and to make that sacrifice or else to go a different way. And of course, uh, this other guy goes the other way, and he's no longer remembered. In fact, it's interesting the way the author of the book of Ruth, he sort of goes out of his way not to remember this man's name. Notice that his, he's never mentioned by name in the text at all. In fact, in the verse in which Boaz calls him over to the gates to sit in that stone bench, the ESV translators will have him say, turn aside friend and sit down here. But in the Hebrew, the, the word friend is not there at all. Uh, rather, it's a very unusual expression, poloni almoni, uh, which basically means something like this, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Such-and-such, or Mr. What's-his-name. So he purposely is avoiding his name to say that his name is not worthy of mentioning because he's not willing to make this sacrifice in love. Uh, he's, he's not worthy of even remembering. Which makes his words seem all the more ironic given the fact that he's not willing to redeem Naomi's property out of a sense of protecting his own inheritance, which is always wrapped up in his lineage, in his name. He wants to preserve his own name, and therefore he's unwilling to preserve the name of Elimelech and Malan. But instead of having his name remembered, now he's completely erased, if you will, from the record. No one even knows the man's name, which uh, is a pretty big deal in Scripture, Uh, In fact, in the Old Testament, it's very important that we get this concept that the very purpose of the leveret marriage, the idea where the the woman's husband who has died, um, her brother-in-law then is supposed to marry her and and take on the the name of the deceased husband. According to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 6, the reason for this type of marriage is literally so that the name of the dead may not be blotted out of Israel. That's a very unusual expression, but if you, if you, if you track the history of, of this concept of having one's name blotted out, it's always a bad thing. Um, if you go back to uh, the beginning, uh, toward the flood, the Lord said He wanted to blot out the name of all these men. Basically, He just wanted to blot them out from the face of the earth because they were wicked. Uh, in the same way, we see this happening again and again. Uh, before he brings the Israelites into the promised land, he purposely blots out the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and all these other uh, people groups that were walking in wickedness. He blots them out to where they're no longer remembered. Um, A couple other examples. In Judges chapter 21, since we just were in that book recently, if you remember after the Israelites had defeated the Benjamites, completely wiped them out, almost as a tribe, they purposely, although they had made a vow not to ever intermarry with the Benjamites, they purposely allowed the Benjamites to steal wives for themselves, if you remember from the men of Jabesh Gilead, or from the women of Jabesh Gilead. And the reason for that is so that their name would not be blotted out from the record in the promised land of Israel. Uh, And we see this again and again in the wilderness period of time. The Lord tells Moses he wants to 
kill an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness because of their wickedness. He wants to blot out their name. And if you remember, Moses says, will you blot out my name instead? Right? He wants to stand up. He wants to be the mediator on their behalf. The Lord will not allow it. Everyone who sins, he says, will have to have their name blotted out if they don't repent. And so even uh, those strange passages, some of those imprecatory psalms, you're familiar with those, where uh, some godly men are basically calling down the curses of God upon their enemies. And one of the, the ways in which they do that is they're calling for the names of the wicked to be blotted out. Literally, David says in Psalm 109, verse 13, may, talking about his enemy, may his posterity be cut off and may his name be blotted out in the second generation. In other words, may his name be forgotten. That's a huge thing. And the reason for that is because there is a close relationship between one's lineage, one's inheritance, and their relationship with God in the Old Testament. They're always related. And this is a concept that continues on from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The idea of one's inheritance and their name as being in a right relationship with God. <clears throat> and we see that. Uh, trying to give you too much of a history lesson here, but it's helpful for us to understand it. Uh, the concept of the inheritance is so important in the Old Testament where we have entire chapters in, in, the, in the law of God, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, devoted to this Who's going to receive this inheritance and why that's important? And then if you remember, you know, when you're reading the book of Joshua, how exciting it is, the first half, how great it is, it's full of action. But then you get to that second half and you're like, what is going on? Slows down tremendously, and now you're just reading a bunch of names, right? Those chapters are so important, even though we don't get it as Americans, because it's saying these people have inherited this land and they are a part of God's covenant and they will be with God forever. That's, that's basically what it's saying. There's a relationship there. There's a, a hope in the God who resurrects the dead that these people who have inherited this land will rise up again in one day and receive the promise of God. That's what he's saying. In fact, that's, that's what we see all throughout. Hebrews 11 makes a strong point of this in those who are seeking a better country, right? You remember Abraham when his wife Sarah died? You remember he wanted to buy a, a piece of property in the promised land to bury his wife from among the Hittites. And if you remember, there's one Hittite named Ephron who was willing to sell, who was, excuse me, who was willing to let Abraham bury his wife on his property but was not willing to give him the property, was not willing to sell it to him. And so Abraham, in the same way that Boaz meets this redeemer at the city gates, Abraham goes to the city gates amongst this, this city and the Hittites and does the same thing, meets with all the elders of the city and says, I want to buy your property. I want all of these people to testify that it's mine. And of course, if you remember, the Hittite just gives him this exorbitant price and Abraham says, done, it's mine. Why? Why is that so important to him? Because he believes that when he and Sarah have died and many, many years have passed, there's going to come a day where the Lord is going to raise them from the dead and he's going to receive the promise of God. It's a promise in the resurrection, you see. Same way, Joseph. You remember, even when Joseph is about to die and he's, he's preparing those who are left, he's saying, bury my bones, not here in Egypt, but back in the promised land. Because this concept of the inheritance and of that lineage and that name being remembered with that land, it shows the covenant of God is true. 
that God's people in God's land under God's rule is where the blessing of the covenant is realized. Over and over again, you'll see this as a common pattern. And so, if Naomi's land is not redeemed, her husband's name and her son's name will disappear from the community of Israel. And it will seem as if the covenant is not true for them. That God will not be a God to them and to their children after them. That God will not keep his covenant promises to them because they've been forgotten. Now do you see how important all of these lineages are? How important all this inheritance is and how they can't sell the property to anyone else because it's theirs by promise of God. It's theirs. And so the problem is this other potential redeemer, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about their future inheritance. He doesn't care about the promise of God. And he certainly doesn't seem to have any hope in the, the resurrection of the dead. All he cares about is the bottom dollar. Similar to the rich young ruler, right? He doesn't care about the kingdom of God. All he cares about is making a profit. No concern for his relatives at all and their name being forgotten or their name being lost. Uh, Paul, if you remember, in the New Testament says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, we think of the people in the immediate household, but he also says, and for those of his relatives. He says, if you don't provide for them, for their name, you're worse than an unbeliever. So having made up his mind, this other potential redeemer in verses 7 and 8 he takes off one of his sandals, right? And he gives it to Boaz in front of the elders and the witnesses. And he says, you buy the land for yourself. In other words, you buy the rights to the land for yourself. Now, it's not certain the reason that he does that. Um, but I, I, one of the commentaries that I read, I think, gave probably the best explanation. Quoting Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. If you remember uh, back then when the, the angel of the Lord and the Lord had spoken to Joshua, he said, when the Lord promises to give Israel every place upon which they set the sole of their feet. So the idea of giving one's sandal to another man is to basically say, I'm giving up the right to walk on that land and claim it as my own. Even though it's my right as the first potential redeemer, I'm now giving it to you because I, I, I relinquish my rights. It's no longer my right to claim that property for myself. But it's interesting, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 gives another example of this. If you remember, Moses is, uh, again, talking about the leveret marriages and what is required of the brother of a, uh, a man who has died and his wife still needs uh, protection and redemption. If he's willing to do it, good and well. But if he's not, literally, Moses tells her to go to the city gates in front of the elders and basically saying to, to, to everyone, uh, this man is, is refusing to protect me, refusing to protect the name of my husband. And then uh, Moses tells her to go up to the man in front of everyone, pull off one of his sandals and spit in his face. And then say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and his house shall be called the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. 
So regardless of what the actual meaning of the term means, certainly it's an act of shame. So this man, this potential redeemer, uh, I'm not sure if Naomi has the right to do this in the same way that the the actual brother, um, the one who's closely related as a brother would. Um, It's possible that the the potential redeemer is trying to avoid the shame of having Naomi come to the town and take off his shoe and spit in his face. He willingly takes off his shoe and says, I give you the rights to redeem the property. And uh, as a result, we never hear from him again. His name is forgotten. But then in comparison, in contrast, we see that Boaz's sacrificial action in redeeming the property is now praised by all the elders and all the witnesses who see all this. Everyone at the gates immediately pronounce this threefold blessing upon him, upon Ruth, and upon their household. We'll talk about a couple of those next week, but I want to focus just on the one in verse 11, uh, toward the end of verse 11 today, on the, on the blessing upon Boaz himself, where they basically say to him, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Again, notice this is all about his name being remembered and renowned. Unlike the other Redeemer who's forgotten, they're praying that Boaz's name would be famous and celebrated throughout the land as a loving and merciful Redeemer. Again, that seems to be the driving point of the whole passage. And, and obviously it worked, right? Because it's like 3,500 years later and we still know this guy's name. Uh, obviously, his name has become renowned. Now, compare that, if you will, in the context of redemption. It makes sense that his name would be renowned for his loving act to Naomi and to Ruth and, and, and their dead husbands. But if you compare that to Christ, it should be all the more obvious to you now why the name of Jesus is to be renowned and remembered. His sacrificial love of giving himself up as a fragrant offering unto God, shedding his own blood, laying down his life for the sake of those whom he redeems, by far surpasses anything that Boaz had done or anyone else had done in that regard. Unlike the rest of us, I think, uh, unless I'm just speaking for myself, it's possible. Um, I assume that many of you also struggle with a little bit of selfishness and a little bit of self-centeredness. And perhaps, uh, like me, you think, uh, well, how can I get as much blessing as possible with as little cost as possible? And you compare that to Christ, who's willing to give up everything out of love in order to redeem His bride, in order to redeem His people. As you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty we might become rich. And as Paul says of Christ in Philippians 2, same concept, right? He said, though He was in the form of God, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, of a slave, And then being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death for the sake of his redeemed. And as a result, this is what Paul says about him. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. His name would be renowned for every single individual on all the earth in every generation all around the world. Uh, Paul says that the Gentiles might put their hope in the name of Jesus. That's that's what's happened. Over and over again, we see this, for salvation is found in no other name. He's the the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There is no other Redeemer. There's no one else who has laid down his life to ransom us in that way. But, but notice what he does for us in that regard. Again, it's not that it's not that we do something to earn that. Jesus as the Redeemer willingly sacrifices in love in order to preserve our name, in order to preserve our inheritance, to secure us with a final place of rest so that we would not be forgotten. Our name would not be blotted out. It's the same concept, you see. He's securing this for us by His redemption price through His own blood. Uh, Listen to what the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He talks about the one who perseveres in His faith in Christ Jesus, who conquers by faith in His name. Jesus says this, I will never blot out His name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before angels. His name will never be forgotten because I've redeemed him. I've redeemed her. And so in the end, on that final day, regardless of what the T-shirts say and what the bumper stickers say and everything else of that nature, it's not the misbehaved that are remembered. (laughs) It's not the wicked that are remembered, but rather it's the humble and contrite who put their faith in Christ Jesus. It's those who have not tried to make a name for themselves, but those who see that the name of Christ is above every other name. There's no other name that even compares with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His name, His name alone, that will be recognized and renowned on that final day. On that day, His name will be praised amongst the elders and all the witnesses and all the angels in heaven. Praise to the blessed Redeemer, when they say, again, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I think if uh, we could go on and on and on, that's just giving you a foretaste of what that praise is. Because His name is renowned, those who trust in Him their name will be remembered. Praise God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we we don't deserve to have our name remembered. We certainly deserve to have our name blotted out from the Lamb's book of life, from life itself. We're no different from those who died in the flood. We're no different from the Canaanites. We're no different from those who, who died in the wilderness after wandering for 40 years. 
It is only by grace, Lord, that we stand. It is only by the redemption price paid by the Lord Jesus Christ that we have hope. Father, we pray that you would continue to teach us to trust in the name of Jesus Christ alone. That we would not look to idols, that we would not look to any other name under heaven to find our place in this world, to find security for the life to come, but we would trust in the name of Jesus alone. And in that name, we would find rest. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand with me? Let's sing together the hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. He makes the wounded spirit old and comes the troubled rest. Tears matter to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. in the rock on which I build my shield in hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my light, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart, I call my warmest thoughts. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then I would thy love proclaim with everything. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. You can be seated. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
obviously the remembrance aspect of the passage is simply that we remember the price of our redemption. We would remember the sacrifice of love. We would remember his willingness not only to lay down his life for a harlot, uh, but to continue to pledge his love for her both now and throughout eternity, that he would make her into the bride of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your blessing upon this ordinance, upon this sacrament. We pray, Lord, that you would confirm our faith this day in Jesus Christ, uh, that we would not seek to make a name for ourselves, but Lord, that we would relish the name of Christ, that we would rejoice in the name of Christ, that we would rest in the name of Christ, and that His name would be renowned. That even in the act of participating in this service this morning, Lord, that we would remember our Redeemer. To know that we cannot redeem ourselves. It is not based upon what we do, but based upon the free grace of God.